This is Matt. And this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Holy shit, we made it. <laughs> <laughs> Limping across the finish line. <laughs> I, yeah, I, that, that's, that's an apt uh, metaphor. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially because I've never run a marathon. Have you ever run a marathon? No, I've done, I, I did, I was into running for a little bit. And I'm actually thinking about um, after the holidays starting again, just, you know, considering, uh, you know, between quarantine and, and obviously having two children this year, uh, a lot of my time has been spent uh, very sort of uh, sedentary, not really doing a lot of physical activity. So just to, you know, maybe just get out a couple of mornings a week and just clear my head. Um, but yeah, no, I did like I did one Thanksgiving five mile run once. Oh, cool. But yeah, I've never done anything beyond like five k plus or anything like that. I did the color run. That's cool. How'd that go? It was fun. Yeah, yeah. Got lots of cool pictures of us nice. covered with the colored powder and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. In a t-shirt. Nice. That's about it. That's not like competitive. It's it's just like, hey, do whatever you feel like. So some people just walk it. We kind of, we, we ran it. Yeah. 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 We ran it <laughs> in quotes. Yeah. When I was. <laughs> but it was fun. When I was running, I almost exclusively listened to songs for the deaf. So like I would, I would know like, oh, if I'm, if, you know, when I would get further earlier in the album, I was like, oh, okay, I'm improving. But like it set a really good. That first track sets a really good pace for. Uh, oh for yeah, run, so yeah, so there's quite a few of them do. They just kind of like a lot of just like chugging, so propulsive. Yeah. yeah, and almost like sometimes it sets into like a particular groove and it stays. It locks in for a while, so it's perfect for running. This year, I um, and I may have talked about this, but I bought um, when the pandemic hit. I bought an electronic drum set, and people may laugh, saying like, "Oh, that's not very." you know, uh, physical, but it is, you know, flailing your limbs around playing drums is, is, um, uh, uh, you know, especially when you're sedentary, uh, can, you could break a sweat, <laughs> especially in the middle of the summer. Um, so that was really a nice escape for me, especially because it's so physical and it's good to kind of get out your aggressions. When I was younger and I was learning how to play the drums, anytime I get angry, I just go down and play the drums and it was really helpful for me. Nice. And, uh, my parents used to have this stack of the stuff that you use for kind of like, I guess it's sheetrock for like walls and stuff like drywall. that. You know, like the thin kind of drywall. That's what it is. Uh, so they'd have a stack of drywall next to me and I used to just beat the shit out of it with my drumstick. Uh, and there'd be all these holes in it and they never said anything, but you know. So that's been helpful. Yeah. And I play up-tempo stuff, some Queens of the Stone Age stuff too. So it kind of helps you kind of practice my uh drum skills while also being a bit active sure. when you're kind of cooped up inside mm-hmm. um but you know we're beating around the bush uh this episode's a bit different than usual uh we're doing a 2020 recap and we did a 2019 recap so we figured we'd do it it made sense to kind of take stock of where we are at the end of the year uh in regards to pop culture obviously that's our that's our show um so we're going to kind of go through and we're going to talk about some of the things from 2019 that we watched or listened to, et cetera. You mean 2020, That right? we enjoyed. 
Did I say 2019? You did. Wishful thinking, I guess. <laughs> I'm just wishful thinking. I was re-listening to the 2019 episode, and there was kind of like this attitude of just like, we made it. We got through 2019. <laughs> oh, oh, how uh, naive we were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're going to talk about 2020 stuff, uh, and also maybe some things in 2020 that we finally got caught up on that we haven't talked about um, on the show. Before we get into the things that we caught up on or watched or whatever, I do kind of want to take stock of how things shifted uh, before, uh, for the show anyway, because we were recording uh, together up until uh, February. We were in person. uh, uh, We would record together, right? Yeah. I believe it was February. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think... um I know the last episode that we recorded in general before uh, my sons were born was the Mad Mad Max, the Sam and Max episode uh, in March. Uh, did we do Succession yeah. in person? No, uh, we 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 recorded that uh, remote, yeah, from our our home. So yeah. I I believe the last one was maybe the first week in March because I remember. That first week we were busy because we also guested on Chuck and Brad's mm-hmm. podcast. And I think we recorded like two episodes of our we show. We did a lot. We had stockpiled. Yeah, we had stockpiled a lot of episodes because, not because we knew we were going to be recording independently, but because, you know, the twins were coming and we wanted to make sure that the show would keep going while you were kind of tied up, um, you know, taking care of two newborns. It was a different experience from recording the show last year and, uh, you know, going back to, and listening to those episodes is kind of, uh, it's in- interesting because a lot of them premiered or, or they went up during the pandemic and we're so blissfully unaware of it in those those early episodes. Yeah, I mean, if, if anything, it maybe kind of touched on the last one we recorded in person. Maybe that was, was it Neuromancer maybe? Yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we did like, two episodes that day we did like neuromancer and maybe bitch planet Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that sounds about right that sounds right yeah and then we just started recording independently uh and then you were gone for a little bit uh but not too many episodes now that i think about i think it was only like five which isn't too bad all things considered no we gave ourselves a pretty good runway and then um you know circumstances here i've kind of touched on it but um sandra had really kind of scary bout of postpartum depression and uh, psychosis which certainly kept me uh, away from the show for a bit um but you know uh happy to report now um for several months she's been much better and showing improvement all the time and so that is definitely in the rear view but um <laughs> one of many curveballs the year threw at uh threw at us for sure um but you did awesome when uh, I was out. Uh, I really, it was really fun. You know, I would find excuses to, you know, for me dealing with what I was dealing with here. Like if I had an opportunity to get out of the house and just to drive, even if it was to go to the grocery store, like I would leap at it. Um, and it was fun to to have new episodes and really not know what was coming down the, the pike at me. So yeah, you had some fun guests on, um, covered some, some great topics. So yeah, thank you for keeping the home fires burning for uh, a couple of months. Uh, no, thank you for um, amidst all this to find time to just do the show with me because I will say, like you know, aside from the pandemic, it was a pretty tricky year. Uh, a lot of lot of shit happened. Um, 
which you know I'm not gonna get into on the show. Uh, we don't want to bring anybody down, but <laughs> I one consistent thing throughout the whole year has been the show. Um, so you know I, I thank you for that for being there um, and 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 bringing this the show into my life and and making it this 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 thing that I look forward to and into just talking and, and about things that I love. And, and at the end of the day, like a lot of this stuff is just really kind of unimportant, but at the same time, it's, it's just been so helpful to just ignore the world and, and talk about pop culture. Sure. And you know, I don't think we've been so naive that when certainly when it's been appropriate, we've roped in the real world into our conversations too. It's not uh while it's been a, a welcome distraction, the, the show is not an excuse for us to put our heads in the sand either. So, you know, I think, uh, and, 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 you know, I think um, you and I have sort of talked about this off mic, but it, it is, you know, now that we're all, we're just about two years into doing it, it has become this interesting sort of um, personal narrative that's, you know, that we've threaded into these conversations as well. So it's... Uh, yeah. So all this being said, like, how has this shifted the way you consume things? Because I'm, I'm assuming um, it, you know, things have been pretty different for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly at the beginning of, you know, when the, the boys came home, you know, that, that first few months, uh, you know, I watched a lot of TV, but a lot of it was comfort stuff, um, things I'd seen before, uh, really just to kill time. I mean, those first few months, uh, you know, we were feeding them every three hours throughout the night. Um, so needy, so needy. <laughs> um, and you know, so I would like, you know, I would just grind through parks and rec or the Simpsons or, um, you know, movies I, I know inside now, just stuff to kill time between, uh, feedings. But the last couple of months, uh, as they've been sleeping more through the night, um, sleeping longer stretches a couple of times during the day when they nap, um, been able to sort of carve out some more time to you read new things, watch new things. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of returning to a, a sort of normal uh, routine with, um, with pop culture at this point. How about you? What a! <laughs> I assume there was a, um, a, a an increase in in your your intake. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this on the show, but at the beginning of the year, I started documenting every single thing that I watch, listen to, read, etc no matter what it is. So I listen to a podcast. I write down that I, I listen to the, an episode of the podcast. Movies, TV shows, comics, books, comedy specials, whatever. So having a full documentation of this <laughs> definitely shows that, um, yeah, I, I, I took in a lot of things. Um, but, you know, when, I'm, when you're not working as much, um, you know, sometimes it's it's, uh, even on a regular year for me, I find that I'm the when I'm the busiest is when I'm most productive and creative as well, 
which is strange. And because there hasn't been much drive for work, um, it's been hard to kind of get motivation to do personal projects and stuff like that. So, um, like you, in a lot of ways, it's been a lot of comfort kind of stuff, mm-hmm. not necessarily re- rewatching things, although I have. Um, but you know, I, this year really wasn't a lot of heady stuff necessarily compared to other years, um, mm-hmm. which isn't a big deal. Um, but one big thing that was different this year was music for me, because typically, you know, I'm always listening to new music, but I found that the bulk of new stuff I listen to typically happens when I'm driving. Uh, and because I didn't drive as much, uh, I didn't really listen to as much new music this year as I usually do. Uh, and that's because when I'm at home, I'm, I'm typically listening to records and stuff like that. And I don't purchase records, you know, having not having heard it. Right. You know, I have to love it in order to, to purchase it. Um, so a bunch of things uh, I have kind of like downloaded that I haven't really gotten to. Um, but that being said, uh, there was some great stuff that came out this year. And uh, I know you had mentioned off mic, but, you know, music wasn't a big factor to your year in general. Yeah, my uh, I wrote I did take some notes for things that I absorbed. And uh, under the music category, it's just one bullet and it says LOL. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the big record that, um, you know, I, I need to bring up uh, and it's partly because you know, last year we did, you know, an episode on the best music of the prior decade. And I feel like that this record was going to be on this current decade. And I know that's really premature, but I mean, it's just a colossal record. And that's Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Um, I'm sure you've heard people talking about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen a single music related publication that hasn't put it as their number one album of the year and i think that's deservedly so because it's just it's otherworldly and beautiful and confrontational and angry um i love it so so much it's so singular and weird in the way that fiona apple is and she just has this her voice is just really settled into she's always had an amazing voice but just she's there's like some east uh, eccentricities that have kind of developed over her years and she's only has uh, five albums now and she takes her time a lot between records um, so when they come out they do feel like events in a lot of ways that you know movies some movies can feel like but yeah it's 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 fantastic have you ever listened to Fiona Apple at all I haven't I think that could make probably for a great episode maybe not this album because I think um, not that it's a good, not a good introduction to her, but, um, some of her older stuff, I think, I think you'd appreciate some of maybe, especially her second album, uh, when the pawn, I think you'd really dig that. Um, uh, and that could lead you into this eventually, cool. but that might make it for a great episode because I think she's, um, she's fantastic. One of the greatest lyricists, um, currently making music. Yeah really terrific yeah i mean that sounds good our 2021 spreadsheet has a lot of blanks in it so yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i've loved her for a long time and um the albums are so few and far between that when they come out again it's just like it's a cause to celebrate this one is pretty like meg likes fiona apple quite a bit and this one sometimes i'll put it on she's just like i this is too much right now (laughs) uh so 
but that's what appeals to me about it. Sure. Um, uh, so that and uh, Moses Sumney, which, who I've mentioned on the podcast before, put out a double album. In fact, I might have said at the end of our 2019 episode that um, I was looking forward to his new record. And yeah, he delivered. It's like a double album. He put them out. At, uh, one came out in, I believe it was March. And then the second half came out in like June. Uh, and they're both of a piece, but both kind of, you know, serve different moods. Um, but he's kind of like this modern, almost like Frank Ocean, where it's like this modern soul R&B experimental kind of all these things together, a little jazzy, this beautiful voice. He sings in falsetto a lot, but also deals a lot with, um, you know, identity and, and, um, and sex and, uh, yeah, I, I love his voice and his melodies. Um, so that's a ter- terrific album. That's called Gray. Cool. Gray part one and two. Uh, there's a lot of other things that I've been kind of, um, you know, playing around, like listening to. Uh, I've made lists of things that I want to catch up on because uh, I know like a lot of websites now are putting up their best music of the year. And I've kind of made my own list of things that I felt I've needed to catch up on. So yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of just digging into a lot of music in these past few, in the next few weeks. And then once 2021 comes, fuck all that. <laughs> Hard reset. <laughs> just reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not listening to any 2020 music. <laughs> Control, alt, delete. So not a ton of music this year necessarily. Um, and, you know, we listen to a lot of comfort stuff around here. One big thing that has been a part of our year um, is Meg fell in love with Harry Styles. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, she's been home a lot more. So we've been listening to his two records, which are solid. They're solid pop records. And maybe that's partly because, you know, she wants to listen to him a lot. So I've kind of, um, you know, been held captive by them. <laughs> but uh, uh, they're not bad. They're definitely, you could tell after coming out of One Direction, just like Justin Timberlake, he felt the need to prove himself. So the first record is is almost like this indie folk kind of thing with like a Beatles-esque, you know, like a British kind of sensibility. Um, he, he's definitely trying really hard, <laughs> uh, but there's some solid songs on that. And the second record feels more of like this kind of big pop with 70s affectations. You could tell he's inspired by bowie in a lot of ways but not necessarily sounding anything like bowie um sure. but it's solid yeah um meg listens to that a lot um <laughs> uh, but that's been pretty good yeah but let's move on um you had mentioned uh that you know you were watching tv as a form of comfort rewatching yeah. parks and rec uh and the simpsons so were there any new 2020 shows that you watched that you were like, yeah, this is great. I love this. Or any older shows that you caught up on? Yeah, well, uh, let's start with some new stuff. Uh, Sandra and I recently watched through the the first season of Ted Lasso, which is Jason Sudeikis' show on Apple TV. Have you seen that? No, I, I haven't watched it. Um, I got, uh, I upgraded my phone, so I have a year free subscription to the Apple TV. Yeah, that's like so when I got my iPad. Apple TV same, Plus, so. right? Yeah, so uh, so I, I've been hearing good things. Um, I'm not really a sports person, as we've talked about. So is that is that a bear, uh, 
a barrier to entryway for this show? Like, no, do you and think I you think, need to be into sports. I don't think or? so. I don't think so. It's it's more about personalities than the actual uh, athleticism and the premise. Him being a um, kind of like an shucks American football coach who's brought in to coach a struggling um, football club in England. Um, I mean, you know, he also has a barrier of entry to overcome. Uh, it, and it's the premise is kind of like a very much like a, the producers thing. The uh, the woman who owns the the team. Um, sort of got the team in an ugly divorce and her plan is to just drive it into the ground because it's the one thing her ex truly loves. Her ex, who's played by um, the actor who plays Giles in Buffy, and he plays oh, such uh, a... He plays such yeah. a smarmy, like, womanizing douche that, like, even though he is... I mean, the only thing different is he didn't have glasses on, but it took us a minute to sort of put the pieces together because he's so... Uh, at odds with that character, but um, Anthony Stewart Head. Sure, took uh, me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so the show is really positive. It is very very upbeat. There's not really the only nastiness is kind of limited to that character. Um, and you know, I, I think it it kind of hits on this thing where I think often we. And this is not uh, an excuse, but, you know, I think niceness gets confused for naivety sometimes. Naivete. Uh, and I think this character that Jason Sudeikis plays um, does a really good job of showing that um, that's not the case. He is extremely nice and is sort of taken for granted and underestimated um by all of these new people, most of these new people in his orbit. Um, and it's just, it is such a, like a warm, fuzzy feeling show. Um, I don't think either Sandra or I expected to like it as much as we did, but you know, we found a lot of this kind of positive television has been really helpful. Um, around the same time we were rewatching all of the great British baking show <laughs> while watching <laughs> the new ones and just like burning yeah. through it. Just, we, we just needed that, like those warm and fuzzies. Um, that's, it's interesting. You say that about Sudeikis because he's typically known for, for being the smarmy asshole. Like he's usually the cynical character in a lot of the roles that he's played in the past. So to hear that he's kind of doing like an opposite thing is uh pretty interesting. Yeah, no, he's and he's really he's really good at it. He really sells it. Um yeah, it's just a lot of fun. And you don't need to know anything about football or soccer. Um hey, we we like Friday night lights, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but everybody does. <laughs> yeah, so that was great. Um you know, kind of along the same lines, the new season of what we do in the shadows is just oh yeah so silly fantastic i mean yeah that whole uh the whole jackie daytona jackie episode daytona. where uh yeah where laszlo hides out as a uh, a bartender who's <laughs> bankrolling a, a local women's volleyball team um yeah, the, <laughs> yeah that's another one it's just so it's just so silly and um man it just it was it was just a nice antidote for for a lot of other stuff. I watched a couple of like documentary series that were new this year. You and I watched McMillions for our appearance on the yeah. Chuck and Brad podcast. A little long in the tooth. Could have been maybe like yeah. an, a, a, 
a, a more fun two-hour documentary. Doesn't that seem to be the through line with a lot of um, modern documentaries that are popping up on all the streaming services that they're all just could probably make for either a solid two-hour documentary or a good article? Yeah, maybe. Because <laughs> like, there's so many things in McMillions that were like, oh, let's just recreate this thing. And, and they're not Errol Morris. There's nothing flashy or interesting about any of these scenes that they recreate. They're just uninteresting. It's just, and oftentimes they'd repeat themselves. They'd be like, they, you'd hear the people being interviewed tell this story and then they'd show the recreation. It's just like, this is totally superfluous. Um, and the way it revealed things I thought was just really, um, a little too ham-fisted. Yeah. Uh, they, they wanted to build to these like kind of shocking twists in some ways, and they just didn't feel that way. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, the other one was High Score, the Netflix video game documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I heard about that. Yeah, I fell off of it. It was a little... I don't know. I, uh, I don't know that I was getting what I had wanted out of it. I found it was... It, it seemed to spend a lot of time on like like player the player competitive scene like in the 90s in the 80s but i don't know that like that a lot of those competitions were just kind of like big marketing things as opposed to like uh like evo or esports now which are more driven by the community and i think those are more interesting but you know like they spent a lot of time on uh cross promotion that Sega and MTV were doing, you know, where gamers were on Alcatraz <laughs> playing Sonic <laughs> Hedgehog against, against one another. And like, there were no real stakes. It was just as like a, yeah, it was a contest, but it, I don't know. It wasn't as interesting as sort of, I mean, the console wars were much more interesting and they kind of breezed through that or the hmm. controversy behind Mortal Kombat and that sort of, uh, ascendancy of, um, you know, parental, pearl clutching at the violence in video games and that kind of stuff. Um, but eh, you know, it was what it was. What about you? What, what, uh, what TV were you new to you for 2020? Were you into this year? Uh, a bunch of things. I would say my, you know, one of my favorites is this, do this documentary series on HBO called how to with John Wilson. Uh, and John Wilson, um, narrates, and he's essentially the cinematographer as well. And he goes around New York and he just films anything and everything. Um, so the first episode is called How, How to Make Small Talk. And he, since he's a narrator, uh, a lot of the show is about him. And not in a self-aggrandizing way, because I think what I love about the show is that he's really interested in people and in human connections. And throughout the course of this how to make small talk, you come to find that he's really bad at making small talk uh, and has difficulty communicating with people. And it lends him on this trip to Cancun where it just so happens to be spring break and there are all these really douchey <laughs> um, spring break goers. They're uh, just super drunk and obnoxious and but he does meet up with this one guy who seems to be there by himself and who's pretty lonely. And throughout the, I will spoil this episode, uh, but it's hard to spoil just because the way the show works is he kind of films anything and everything. And then he 
juxtaposes images for jokes. So, and it's hard to explain without actually watching it, but uh, it's really clever and funny. So like nothing is off limits. And oftentimes like he'll show, he'll be talking about something and then he'll show things in New York uh, that represent or, or almost like uses the punchline. But there are real moments of pathos where people really open up to him because he seems pretty sincere. And in this first episode, this guy he meets in Cancun um, reveals to him that his friend had just committed suicide. And it's this really heavy moment in this, in this really silly show. But he doesn't use it for exploitation. It's really just about like, hey, we're all struggling through this. And he started working on the show. He's been filming it for a few years. Um, and in interviews, he talks about how much footage he's amassed. And a big part of the show is, is or editing the show, is figuring out how to catalog it all. Um, but because he was filming so much, he ended up filming into the pandemic. So the show kind of indirectly deals with that and or directly deals with it. And I found it was probably the most comforting uh, pop culture to deal with the pandemic um, in a sense because he's trying to make risotto for his neighbor and it's really charming the whole thing's really low-key um, and really surprising there are moments in here that I just burst out laughing with just being so surprised with what we were watching uh, the second episode is called how to put up scaffolding <laughs> and there's how to improve your memory how to cover your furniture, how to split the check, and how to cook the perfect risotto. But they always end up in completely different places than where it starts. The show is produced by Nathan Fielder, uh, who did uh, Nathan For You, uh, and they have a similar overlap. But I do feel that there's an element of Na um, Nathan For You that was a bit exploitative, where because he would go into businesses under the guise of, like, I'm going to help your business, and then he'd come up with these radical ideas in order to help the business. Um, and there are moments where you, even though he was always the butt of the jokes, Nathan Fielder was, um, there are always these little elements of feeling a little bad for for <laughs> these businesses, whereas this show kind of removes all that, and it's really just about trying to understand people. Sure. And I think that's that sort of empathy is was so, so needed this year, not just with understanding people with their choices regarding the pandemic, but with the election and obviously social unrest. Um, so it was a very comforting show in mm -hmm. that regard. Uh, and it got renewed for a second season. I'm super excited that it'll come back. Um, another show that I watched earlier in the year, which was so surprising and really charming. And I wanted to mention it because um, as we've discussed in the past, we did an episode on Venture Brothers and I was really taken by it. Um, and this show has some overlap with Venture Brothers and The Tick. Um, and that's um, Harley Quinn. Uh, this premiered on the DC Universe app. and But once HBO Max kind of came around, it kind of took control of that. And it also got renewed for a third season. And it really is taking the character of Harley Quinn and making her, making the world of DC Comics, like, you know, it's poking fun out of it poking fun at it in similar ways to how Venture Brothers likes to kind of, you know, poke and prod at old Marvel tropes and, and Johnny Quest and, and the tick is just making fun of superheroes in general. 
that's what this show does for the DC universe. So Bane is just like just ridiculous and funny and and Robin is played by um uh Jacob Tremblay, <laughs> the little kid from um that movie The Room. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh and when he sh- when he shows up and you hear him like being really angry cuz he plays Damian Wayne. Um <laughs> it's just really really funny and unexpected. But aside from being really funny and and shockingly violent, um it has this great relationship with Harley and, and Ivy at the center of the whole show. And it's about Harley finding an identity for herself beyond the Joker, which is great because the Joker is such a tired, overused character at this point. Uh, and Harley is pretty interesting in her own right because there are so few superhero or comic book characters that are unapologetically just, you know, hedonistic and and over-the-top um, you rarely see that with any kind of female character. So it's a fun show and it's again kind of, you know, light and, and breezy in 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 ways that we've both seemed to gravitate towards this year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that sounds great. Um, you know, thinking back to Batman the animated series, you know, a favorite of mine was the episode where Joker throws Harley out and she ends up crossing paths with poison ivy and she's like you don't need that asshole let's just you know fuck all of them let's just do it our way and you know they just start this successful string of robberies and Mm -hmm. you know it is um of course the show eventually puts her and joker back together but um yeah i think that was a standout especially since it's hardly originated in that show to kind of show there was more to her than just like the the ditzy girlfriend character which she kind of feels like at the beginning she was a standout for that show for a reason because they really took to her and the fans really took to her. So that's why she stuck around for so long. Uh, but she definitely needed to grow. And unfortunately, with stuff like the Suicide Squad movie, it feels like she's been co-opted by like that hot topic, mall punk aesthetic. Um, yeah. Or and, even and just that's a like, bit of a bummer. Uh, yeah. And the um, and those the, video games, like the Arkham she, games, she too. looks terrible. Yeah. Uh, none of the characters in those games. games are very, I mean, the, the, it really leans into like that ugly, gritty aesthetic. And um, especially, I mean, Harley is very like, you know, grossly overly sexualized in those games. Um, yeah. So it's good that these shows kind of like take that back a notch. And, and this also has so much levity to have one of the main characters be Kite Man. <laughs> so, uh, which is fantastic. And he just has a giant kite and he flies around the city in a kite and... <laughs> And, you know, Batman is super neurotic and obviously um, Jim Gordon is also neurotic, but he's like wants to desperately have this relationship with Batman and Batman won't kind of reciprocate. And uh, so there's a lot of funny things in the margins. And it also does an interesting thing with the Joker, uh, which was unexpected. And the Joker uh, is voiced by Alan Tudyk, who does a bunch of characters oh, on the cool. show. Yeah. Uh, the main characters are, are uh, well, part of Harley's gang is is Poison Ivy, King Shark, um, who's vo- voiced by Ron Funches, which is pretty, he's, it's pretty amazing. Um, Clayface, who is also voiced by Alan Tudyk, but he is like a struggling actor. He plays it as like this wannabe thespian. So he's always, you know, I can do this in character. And um, <laughs> it's really, it's pretty great. Um uh, that's the core group of them and tony hale plays dr psycho and dr psycho is this like misogynistic asshole with psychic powers 
Um, so he's part of Harley's, ga- Harley's gang for a while, but also uh, is probably more of a villain. Um, but the show does really interesting things with all these characters. It's really funny. Um, and again, like the way the second season ends is really exciting and opens the whole show up. And it's kind of felt like they were building to this moment and this thing where you like when the show started, I was like, why didn't you just do this? But when it gets to it, it doesn't feel like delayed gratification. It feels like, okay, yeah, that feels right in this moment. And it's a, a triumphant season ender and, and it's exciting that they're coming back for more. Nice. Before we move on, the only other show I did want to talk about, because I've, I've mentioned it uh, in previous episodes, I did rewatch Avatar The Last Airbender, but I did recently finish The Legend of Korra, uh, which I'm still kind of sitting with. Um, it's a lot... It was a lot different than I was expecting. I had deliberately avoided reading anything about it in the intervening years. I'd watched the first season as it aired. Um, and, you know, I think like The Last Airbender, it's it's surprising in a lot of ways and gives its audience, which is, you know, technically, you know, children, uh, a lot more credit. Um, and whereas The Last Airbender was kind of one big story with like, you know, the seasons obviously kind of focusing on certain chapters of it. The Legend of Korra's four seasons were pretty self-contained with a big bad for each one um, and did a lot more exploration of sort of the gray area of what it meant to be that kind of hero. Uh, you know, the the four villains are essentially these you know, uh, extremists in one way or another, uh, whether religious extremists, um, sort of nationalist extremists, populist extremists. Um, uh, Henry Rollins voices this anarchist who gets the ability to airbend, uh, and he's really great. Um, but kind of, you know, a big part of the show is exploring like, you know, what, you know, what can you learn from your enemies and, you know, maybe what they did was wrong and how they approached it was, you know, obviously horrible, but like, you know, where can you, the hero who's supposed to bring the world together, find, find something in what they believed in. And it's really nuanced and surprising. And yeah, you know, I think, uh, like I said, I've just been kind of sitting with it since I finished it a couple weeks ago, but, uh, did, have you watched either of these shows? I've watched the first two seasons of The Last Airbender or Avatar. So you never finished it? No. Um, you know, I it was one of those shows that I liked, but I was never I never found super compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was it was interesting and I I liked what it was going for, but I never was like, I need to finish this. And for some reason I just didn't. And it wasn't like any kind of thought but put behind it like, oh, I'm never going to finish this kind of thing or, or, or whatever. It's just, I just didn't finish it. So, yeah. I, you know, it's, I'll probably get to it at some point and that could always be an interesting episode. Sure. Especially because I did watch the first two seasons and for some reason didn't finish it. Mm-hmm. My brother loves it. He actually has, uh, an, uh, avatar tattoo. I think it's like one of the symbols for airbending or something. Oh, like okay. That. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry if I'm, sorry if I'm screwing that up, Jeff. Um, but, uh, Th- that's like his favorite show. Um, and I know he loves the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Uh, everyone does. It's great. Sorry. 
it, yeah, it's the best. Um, yeah, so you know, at some point, I, I suppose I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll get to it. No pressure. Let's talk about movies because I think yeah, let's do it. Uh, you know, coming off of a couple of your TV picks for the year, um, a couple of new 2020 movies kind of came to mind. Obviously, talking about Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey came out. It was what, yeah. the only superhero movie to make it to theaters for <laughs> a week, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I think I so. I think so, yeah. So, uh, but before we dip in, I want to ask, is this the first year since you, for, since you were really, really little that you haven't seen a movie in the theaters? Oh, I mean, it must be. Yeah. Yeah. Did I see anything in the theater this year? Hold on. Let's see. Um, Streaming, 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 (laughs) streaming, streaming. Yeah. I did not go to the theaters once this year. That is, uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, usually you and I are good for like whatever the big, uh, you know, the big blockbuster is or... Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, Birds of Prey came out right as... It was February. Yeah, so right as like pandemic stuff was kind of getting started and... Yeah, so I, I actually managed to get to the theater a few times um, just because, you know, we, <laughs> we know, I'm a junkie. I, I mm-hmm. you know, I got to get my fix. But I saw, in the theater, I watched Birds of Prey. I saw Underwater, uh, which oh, I, yeah. I still think is a solid uh, B-movie um horror action b movie with uh kristen stewart um i saw the invisible man which is which is really good i really enjoy that and the last movie i saw in the theater was uh, onward i took uh, my godson to go see it and i was really bummed this year because you know a lot has been said about the theater experience and how it's not the same um obviously you know digital projection makes makes it easier for the theater workers to kind of cycle through each showing and so there's a lot of laziness in the margins whether or not they're not flagging the screen for the proper aspect ratio they're leaving on lenses for 3d and and patrons are disrespectful etc 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 but there is something magical about being in a big theater and and hearing the reaction of people and I took Miles to go see Onward, and it was the first time that we had done anything, just the two of us. Um, so it meant a lot to me that I could share this kind of experience with him, and and he loved the movie. And um, so I was so excited to be able to take him to some more movies this year, whether it was, uh, you know, Pixar's Soul, or even the SpongeBob movie, which I'm sure he would have loved. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a real bummer that um that i wasn't able to do that but hopefully at some point we'll be able to go back obviously there's a lot being said right now and a lot of things happening in regards to theaters and they're struggling quite a bit and warner brothers or uh i guess at&t because they own them (laughs) uh recently announced that hbo max will all of their big all of warner brothers big movies that will will premiere simultaneously in the theater and on HBO Max, um, which there's been a lot of hand-wringing about. Yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons, it's it's and it feels like a moment of desperation for them because they're just, they're in panic mode. Um, and in some ways, rightfully so, because there's no support for the theater, um, for the theaters. But I think the theaters are going to suffer more than the actual big 
studios media companies yeah yeah so they're in a way they're sort of overlooking that and uh like they're just saying like oh well what's our bottom line so yeah. you know and it's interesting it's unfortunate because you know i think you know i can't imagine kicking in any money to help showcase cinemas keep their doors open yeah but you know sure if the avon the, the last indie theater in providence did like a, a gofundme or something i'd probably kick into that i think i think there has been some discussion around how independent theaters may end up doing better than the big chains in a weird way considering things yeah, i mean maybe. who knows it's all speculating yeah i mean i don't know how realistic that scenario is i think that's sort of like uh this best case dream world where the you know the single screen two screen movie houses survive and you know maybe the the age of the blockbusters sidelined to streaming or something <laughs> i don't know who knows i think people are just trying to find a a silver lining because i mean it yeah. does look really i mean i don't know what even with a vaccine when when's when do you want to go sit shoulder to shoulder with two three hundred people yeah. at, a, at a movie you know yeah it's gonna be a while yeah yeah i, I mean like I would assume at this point the first big movie that's coming up that at least they haven't like they haven't changed their mind yet is Black Widow, which is in May. And I don't really have any interest in going to the theater then. <laughs> no. I mean, we'll see where things are at that point, but you know but you know, they've 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 held fast with at least Disney has with the Marvel movies saying like, no, they're going to open in theaters because they know the amount of money they spent on them. They're not going to recoup. They tried it with, with Mulan and you know, they've been very coy about, um, you know, the reception to that or how many viewers it got or cause they can't necessarily equate that with the amount of money it, it would have made in theaters, you know? Yeah. And but like, I think- you're never going to make, you're never going to make billions of dollars by releasing it on a streaming service. It's not possible. You know? No, but I also think that Mulan's a tough one to judge it against because the track That's record fair. is already these live action remakes of their animated movies generally aren't great. Yeah. You know, I don't No, but they do make money. They do make money though. I guess that's true. I mean, Lion King made over a billion dollars. It was one of the highest grossing films of last year, and even Aladdin did really really well. So, it's not like, you know, critics seem to hate him. Um Rightfully so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, they they do well. You know, there's that nostalgia factor in them, and like they're some of my least favorite movies of the past like five or so years. I just yeah. think a lot of them are just abysmal. But yeah, I mean, but I guess you're right. You know, there, there is a difference between something like that and, and the Marvel movies. But like, there's no end game that doesn't exist uh, on a streaming service, and they would lose like. A lot of money now the argument can be made that hey maybe that's a good thing because that we could rein in the costs on these things etc 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 but it seems to be the way that they're going is to just you know announce a shit ton of tv shows and um or mini series or whatever they're gonna be yeah um so it, you're getting more of the same it's just in a different form i suppose yeah i don't know uh and my the problem is is like I just don't want the small stuff to go away. I want 
a lot of everything. I want variety. And unfortunately, what happens oftentimes is a movie will play a festival and it'll get a lot of great press and people seem to be really high on it. And then it gets acquired by one of the streaming services and then it gets buried. And there's no push behind that to say like, this is good, people should watch this. You have to find it or you have to be someone like us that's just actively invested in these sort of things and you're already gonna seek it out. Sure. Um, which is a bummer and um, that mid-tier stuff, uh, you know, it, it, it might go away. And, and you look at a movie like The Farewell from last year, which um, Lulu uh, Wong uh, made and she, you know, the movie played at festivals, got a lot of good buzz and she got approached by a streaming service and they were going to give her more money, and she decided instead to do uh, a push uh, she, uh, through uh, the, the theatrical experience to get more buzz. Uh, and so she got acquired by A24 for less money, and it ended up uh, opening the same weekend as Endgame and had a higher per screen average than Endgame did. Obviously, you know that's playing New York and LA, so it's not playing nearly as many screens. So, but it's that's still pretty impressive. Yeah. That means that those shows were selling out. So, uh, and that word of mouth is going to spread. So, when it do- eventually does show up on streaming services, you know, there's going to be a little more push for people to watch it. Sure. Um, so, I don't know. But then again, this year, you know, the Queen's Gambit, which is not a movie, but it is a TV show. But it is the type of thing that the type of movie or story that we're talking about which is like these things that are probably more for adults not meaning that it's violent or edgy or what whatnot or uh salacious in any way but just that you know it's a little more mature yeah that's, yeah, that's it's a not, good word for it's it it's not kid stuff you know i i yeah. enjoy I, I i i enjoy like the marvel movies but i'm sort of you know, I, 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 I real, I'm like, oh, none of them came out this year. That's not a bad thing. You know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> maybe a little space would do everybody some good. Um, you know, uh, we. But I, I think that's part of the problem with this big announcement of of shows is that it's just like it's just there's always going to be a Star Wars show on and there's always going to be a Marvel show yeah. on. And there was a point in time where it felt Star Wars felt special. Yeah. It felt. And maybe that that's partly nostalgia because when we were really young, there was three movies. And then once they announced three more, it just felt like that that was never going to happen. And we were alarmed that that was going to happen. And it was exciting. It was exciting that new things were coming. And now that excitement, like the announcement the other day, it's just like you hear an announcement. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's cool. Just stop announcing stuff. After a while, it just felt like, oh, this is overwhelming. Like everyone gets a TV show, and yeah, um, and you know, and it's I just think, not exciting. And I think in the '90s too. I mean, it wasn't that Star Wars wasn't around. It's just you couldn't make it on that cinematic scale for cheap. So I mean, there were who knows how many books and comics, and those stories were all there. We were just taking them in differently. And I mean, if the the novels were any indication, um, uh, there is such thing as too much of a good thing. <laughs> I mean, they, some of <laughs> yeah. them are bad, really bad, and some of them are really fun. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, comics are the same. I mean, not every Marvel book that comes out every month is good. <laughs> There's a lot of trash. Oh yeah, 
and mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I mean, it's maybe they're just playing averages, you know, who knows? They throw enough spaghetti at the wall, the, the good stuff's going to stick and people will chuck the rest. But so we're talking a lot about the idea of movies. Um, let's talk about some that we actually watched. I also saw Onward. Um, it showed up on streaming and actually, so we had the boys. Sandra and I went home a few days later. The boys were, because they were born early, they had to stay at the NICU for a couple weeks. Um, so our first night home when she was discharged, we watched Onward, uh, not realizing the premise was about two sons on a quest to <laughs> spend one day with their dead dad. And we both just kind of <laughs> looked at each other like, why are we doing this? Um, you know, it, it struck a nerve uh at that particular moment, but I, 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 I found it really charming and really enjoyed it. Um, but you, so you talked about Harley Quinn. Um, and what was that documentary show you were talking about? How to with John Wilson. Yes. Um, so we've got Harley Quinn and we've got a documentary that's not exploitative. Two things that came out this year, obviously birds of prey, um, which kind of gave, uh, Harley Quinn, her her due after Suicide Squad. Yeah. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really charming. Yeah, me too. I thought it was. Um, it really struck that balance of camp and grit. And I don't think, I don't think, any amount of grit in a superhero movie is going to matter unless they realize that it's all inherently ridiculous and they should embrace a little bit of that. Um, yeah. So. And it looked fantastic. Like yeah. it was lit well. Um, lens by Matthew Libatique, um, who uh, was a cinematographer for A Star is Born, the most recent version. Uh, and it's just a lot of great saturated colors. It feels like there's more thought put behind the production design. There are actual sets. Um, and the violence is gleefully fun and over the top. Like it's so, so violent. Um, yeah. But in great, um, like R-rated movie ways, you know, yeah, and representative of the character, character too. I mean, yeah, um, I think, you know, not unlike, I, I mean, she kind of feels like DC's Deadpool in a way. Like that's kind of what they're going for. I think by embracing the nature of the character and all that comes with it, uh, you know, I think the experience is more fun than just like kind of same like sure. cookie cutter stuff but i saw that as a as a way to dismiss the movie that oh it's just like deadpool and i feel like that misses the point of it completely because to me deadpool is just smarmy and self-satisfied and never as clever as it thinks it is and this breaks the fourth wall but it's not like it's not like it's not desperate about it uh and it's it's just you know, like she obsesses over an egg and cheese sandwich. It's it's great. It's so much fun. And I do think maybe like the the kind of nonlinear narrative that they use is probably a bit superfluous. And, um, you know, I could probably spend more time with some of the other characters because I think they're great. In particular, Mockingbird by uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead is is a lot of fun because it's just making fun of a lot of tropes of the you mean you know, the, uh, the revenge fan yeah huntress yeah huntress sorry sorry who did i say you said mockingbird did i oh yeah that's another dc character sorry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you know i think 
I don't know. I mean, if they ever were to follow it up, you know, I think teaming up Harley with Poison Ivy and pitting them against the other characters would be a lot of fun. I think they've talked about that. Um, I know, um, what's her name? Uh, the director is Kathy Yan. And I believe she talked about that as a follow-up, that that's what they'd be interested in, her and Margot Robbie. But the movie didn't do as well as they were hoping. You know, you never know. Maybe it could be like a cult thing. Yeah. Or like where like there's enough support behind it. You know, I, I would imagine it did as well as something like, you know, Ant-Man. <laughs> but right. I, I don't know. What, what, maybe not, you know. But piggybacking off of one of your other TV picks, um, uh, a new Borat movie came out. Um, which I was, uh, you know, uh, apprehensive about. I remember when the original one, uh, showed up, I did, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if all of these people deserve what he did to them. Um, yeah, uh, this one felt a little more righteously exploitative. (laughs) I didn't feel bad about anybody (laughs) who looked like a complete asshole. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the whole, sort of a sleight of hand of really putting the daughter character in the spotlight for the fake interviews as a way to sort of work around and also to acknowledge that everybody knows who he is. Um, yeah. They, they call that out in the movie where he's just like walking down the street as Borat and everyone's like, yeah. it's Borat, it's Borat. Yeah. Which is a pretty funny moment. And then to see him as, as Borat, Borat in disguise, <laughs> in disguise is, it was a pretty funny thing, but, uh, Going back to um, his the character that's his daughter, that actress is just phenomenal. Uh, right. Maria Baklova, she's just unreal. Uh, commits to everything um, just as much as he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but feels genuine in a lot of ways too. Like there's some real surprising moments of pathos that I wasn't really expecting, especially towards the end, where the movie really becomes about their relationship more than anything. Yeah, yeah, I um, I was pleasantly surprised. Did you watch Greyhound, the Tom yes. Hanks naval combat yeah. movie? Yeah, I think I think I as a dad I, now, I was contractually obligated to be very <laughs> excited about some <laughs> World War II naval combat. But that was fun. I think. Um, yeah, you it, know, it's what it needs to be. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's very. Like, it felt. Uh, I felt like I was watching an episode of Star Trek. Like in like. Yeah. It was very much about process and like tech talk, um, but it didn't bog down in that stuff. No, I mean, like it wasn't just like because, like, obviously, when you're on, you know, I don't know anything about running a battleship, you know, Uh, but it doesn't get bogged down in the minutia of that. I think it's really about like how he is this captain who's in control and in charge and all that stuff, and Mm -hmm. it's just a brisk ninety minutes, and it's. So yeah, a solid little action here. It was the yeah. unexpected. I believe he wrote it too, right? Tom Hanks wrote it. I think so, it. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, now, I know, so I wanted to talk about this movie in particular because I know that uh, I think you've mentioned it, uh, maybe not to me directly, but I've seen you talking about it with other people online. Um, but I do think we should talk about Sound of Metal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really... I'm excited to talk about this because a lot of it was filmed in my hometown. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, it's directed by Darius Martyr and it stars uh, Riz Ahmed and Olivia Koch. Um, yeah. And so they're um, Riz Ahmed and Olivia Koch are, are a couple and they have a band. Uh, I guess you'd call it maybe like a, 
post punk sort of experimental metal kind of thing. It's kind of a noise band in some ways. Mm-hmm. Riz Ahmed is a drummer uh, and he is losing his hearing to the point where he's essentially deaf. Uh, and then he kind of goes to live in this community of uh, deaf people. And it's about him learning to adjust to this drastic change in his life. This one really caught me off guard. I think the premise of a, you know, a, a metal drummer losing his hearing can go a lot of ways. Um, sure. You know, I can imagine this being like a dopey, broad, like Farrelly Brothers 90 co- 90s comedy or something. Um, <laughs> or, or, or like an overwrought indie film. And I don't think this was that. I think this really... No. Um, you know, this really had a lot of nuance and a lot of care, not just for the characters, but for the the condition of deafness and really showing it not as a disability. And that, I mean, that's a big part of what his character needs to sort of learn. And this yeah. community that he's involved in uh, or finds himself in, you know, that's sort of the guiding principle is like, there's nothing wrong with us. This is not a thing to be yeah. fixed. Um that's yeah. what I think what works about it so well too, because there really is a lot of nuance there in mm-hmm. that in those conversations. I, I have some interesting connections to this movie. Um, one of which is I am a drummer, uh, and the other one is that Meg went to school for audiology, so she studied a lot of this stuff. Oh, and we watched when she was in school. Um, we watched a lot of documentaries about the deaf community, and there is even within the community this sort of division about getting implants uh, mm-hmm. the cochlear implants um to once you're deaf to kind of help you hear and it's a fascinating topic because in the movie he has to learn to be deaf and that that's okay and that that doesn't that's not a disability at the same time when it's happening and again, this is spoilers for the movie. So if you're interested in this, uh, maybe skip ahead a bit. I don't question him when he decides to get those implants. You know? Yeah. Uh, I was in those position. I would, I would probably think about doing that as well. And I think that's a difficult thing. And I think the movie handles that pretty well. Yeah. I mean, especially too. you know, one, what we haven't mentioned is that he and his partner are both addicts. And have both, like, they both met each other and were kind of, they kind of, you know, uh, they they met each other at a point in their lives where, you know, they were both overcoming their addictions. And it's this, this relationship and this band is so much more than just a romance and an artistic outlet. It is really like a lifeline. So, of course, like, yeah, yeah. I, of course, I don't question his motivation to, like, I've got to be able to hear so I can do this band, so I can be with this girl because... Without all that stuff, yeah, like it all falls apart. Who am I? Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you really feel that in those moments where, if I'm not a drummer, if I'm not in this band, what am I? Who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, so he really it throws his whole kind of life for a curve. Yeah, um, yeah it, it it hit me uh, pretty hard. I mean, I don't, I, I don't. The movie obviously is. is there's a lot of weight behind something like this. And I don't want to make light of anything. Um, from my personal experience, you know, I was playing music for a good 20 something years 
without really doing anything to protect my ears. Uh, and uh, probably in my late 20s, early 30s, after playing music um, fairly frequently, I started having some damage to my ears. Obviously nothing to the point that, that he has because they imply in the movie that it's not just the loud music that he has some sort of degenerative um, problems with his ears. That Maybe it's, this is something mm-hmm. that was going to happen regardless. Um, but there were moments where certain pitches and tones really hurt me. Like I could feel it physically in my ears because I didn't take care of them. So at that point forward, I had to kind of, oh, I need to start wearing headphones when I'm playing the drums in order to kind of, you know, take this down a few notches or wear earplugs when I go to see live bands and stuff. And it kind of got better over time because I wasn't playing as frequently. But Mm -hmm. that idea that like things could just be changed so quickly um, is, uh, yeah, I thought it was, it was handled so well. And, and the use of sound in this movie is great too. Uh, This is something I would have loved to have seen in a theater. Sure. Just big and loud because there are moments where like the sound cuts out and you hear tones and, and whatnot. Um, and I think it would have worked really, really well with a great sound system. Yeah, I definitely missed out on a bit of that because we can only, you know, our TV has to sort of top out at a certain volume at night because <laughs> the sure. boys are sleeping. <laughs> and especially this, I was riding the volume on this one early on because of all the, the music and the drumming. Um, yeah. And I may, I may have ruined an early, very emotionally charged scene because it was filmed at the diner in my hometown. Uh, and I got very excited about seeing it and uh, had to tell Sandra about what my regular order was. And she's like, the movie's on. You, <laughs> people are crying on screen. Can this wait? Um, and I mean, not just at the, you know, and uh, sort of in around the area where I grew up. So at the beginning of the movie where they're in their RV driving up and down, that's Route 1 in uh, Saugus, Massachusetts. Um, it's a big stretch of stores and lots of, big signs that are sort of, uh, burned into my brain from, uh, you know, car rides as a kid. Yeah. I caught up on a few, uh, I, I think a handful that surprised you. I had never seen any of the oceans movies and I watched 11, 12 and 13 recently. Um, nice back to back to back, which were, um, yeah, they were fun. Um, good, uh, good heist movies. Um, mm. Terminator Dark Fate I finally got around to seeing the newest Terminator movie that's the, uh, the latest one yeah yeah not good no no it's so fast those, those the action sequences just have no weight to them it's just all like whatever I, I just don't yeah. care about any of those action sequences they're uninteresting and I, yeah and don't care about the characters really either yeah uh, you know Linda Hamilton comes with you know, pre-installed empathy because we know her. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was so like bang, bang, bang. And I mean, if nothing else, Terminator two takes its time. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's sort of stood the test of time, uh, is that, uh, for all of its big, loud bluster, it really kind of takes its time with the quieter moments and really gives you a reason to to give a shit about <laughs> you know these two robots punching each other for a kid um <laughs> yeah uh yeah any other um pre-2020 movies that you caught up on any other 2020 movies you want to talk about before we move on 
Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention for 2020. Uh, one is this movie called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Uh, and it's directed by Turner Ross and Bill Ross. Uh, and it is a documentary about um, this uh, bar in Vegas, kind of like a, a dive bar that is closing. Uh, and so they're just... The camera crew is in the, the, the bar for the duration of its last day. Uh, and it documents all of the patrons that are regulars uh, as they're coming and going and the bartenders. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really sad. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think a lot of it was filmed around the time of the 2016 election. And... So there's that kind of weight to this seismic change that was about to come, but also with these people who have become dependent on the connections they formed via this bar that is no longer going to be there. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of, you know, alcoholism involved in this, a lot of alcoholics, people that have a lot of regrets, but there's a lot of just these moments of, tender moments of these people connecting with each other um and and also just kind of revealing the things their regrets in life uh it's really beautiful shaggy dog kind of story there's no necessarily narrative to it there's no sit down talking heads it's just like this is what's happening in this bar i do think the way these directors work I haven't read too, too much about it, but I think they kind of concocted this actual bar in order to do this. Um, but it feels so genuine, you know, mm -hmm. and real and the people are real. Um, it's, yeah, I really, really like it. Really took to it. I also want to talk about this movie that not a lot of people are talking about. Because uh, obviously we could, we could kind of talk about all the big movies of the year. Um, I think it was a fantastic year for movies, even mm -hmm. though, you know, a lot of stuff has been pushed to next year. Um, but that's kind of maybe opened the door for people to watch more uh, independent movies, smaller uh, run movies or things that had more access uh, that people had more access to because they did go to streaming. But there's this movie called Alone that came out this year by this director, John Hames. Have you heard of him? No. Uh, you know, he's like a B-movie director. And what happened was is he did the third and fourth um, movies in the Universal Soldier series. Okay. Now, if you've never seen them, what he essentially did was um, those movies, you know, after the second movie, which I don't think is, is you know, people are interested in in any way, you know, they became like direct-to-video kind of things where... Uh, there was low stakes. And so he had very, very little money and he used that to make these really weird idiosyncratic action movies. In particular, the fourth one, which I rewatched this year and it's, it's fantastic. It's called Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning and it does st star Jean-Claude Van Damme and um, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, and it's like this weird Kubrickian <sighs> abstract art film action movie. Like he really just took all this low budget and there's like a lot of symmetry and strobic lights and, and weird kind of 
psychedelic aspects to it and the violence is just so over the top and just really gnarly uh and it's such a unique experience and unexpected because it's like universal soldier you just kind of write it off instantly Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway he did this movie called alone this year um and it's another b movie kind of genre picture uh about this woman who's uh moving She's kind of moving her stuff after she's been recently widowed and she's traveling across um, a few states. So she's got a U-Haul and all that stuff. Um, and it's kind of like the movie Duel uh, by Spielberg where you know, he's being chased by someone on the highway, but this person ends up abducting her and she has to escape. So not, not necessarily anything new in this, um, but it's just so well executed and he's just like a really smart genre director. Uh, with low budget stuff. Uh, it's really worth watching if, if you're looking for just kind of like a, a down and dirty, nitty gritty genre movie. Uh, nice. I don't see a lot of people talking about it, but it's the kind of movie that I'd like to see more of, you know, uh, that kind of harkens back to like 70s exploitation stuff or horror stuff. Cool. Um, so that's really solid. Cool. Um, I mean, speaking of, you know, really gritty, gnarly action, um, Doom Eternal came out at the beginning oh, yeah. of 2020 i haven't finished it mm-hmm. um I, I played a decent chunk before the boys were born uh and just it's uh i mean it's it's a lot different from the doom we talked about on our episode <laughs> last year it's very very fast i mean the the way it's structured is like each level almost has like these little like arenas where you just get just mm-hmm. assaulted by swarms of monsters and it's very fast and you got to sort of manage in your head um, a lot of systems in terms of like how the creatures react and attack you, uh, the types of weapons you have, resource management. You burn through your ammo very quickly. Got a lot of different ways to dispose of these monsters in really gruesome ways. Um I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I unfortunately just haven't gotten back around to finishing it yet. Um, but I think it just finally made its way to switch. I think it's a digital only. I think the, um, Oh, cool. The switch carts are a little, I don't think they pack enough juice to contain so much brutality. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, another fun one has been the super Mario 3d all stars, which is a repackage, of Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine, and Mario Galaxy for Switch. Sunshine's really the only one I've spent a lot of time with. Um, of the three of them, it's the only one I've never finished before. And it's really an oddball. It's sort of the black sheep of the certainly the 3D Mario games. Um, it's fun. A lot of the stuff that hasn't aged well is sort of indicative of that era of gaming, um, which you can kind of forgive. But... Um, yeah, it's definitely the whole game feels like something that would be one world in Mario Odyssey. Like there'd just be like that one tropical resort planet that you go to and kind of branch off from there. The whole game could probably be contained in one world in this new one. But it's been fun to revisit and uh, confirm some suspicions about it and maybe uh, um, take away some positives I had overlooked. Um, have you been playing any new stuff? I know Meg has been playing Animal Crossing. Yeah, she plays a lot of Animal Crossing. She loves it. She even made me in in her Animal Crossing, and she built like a little 
because she you could play as like almost as if like she she set it up as if I would play, but I I just didn't have any connection to it. So yeah. Um, no, I mean I think everything I've played this year I've mentioned already on the <laughs> show, which is Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Um, which is a lot of fun, a platformer similar to the game I mentioned last year, which uh, Hollow Knight, Yep. Uh, which I believe I talked about on our 2019 episode. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot of fun. I played a game that you recommended in our 2019 episode, uh, which was Gato Roboto, which is kind of uh, like Super Metroid, except for you're a little cat and you operate a giant mech, which is mm-hmm. tons of fun. Yep. Really simple. Um, uh, what I needed it to be. Uh, you let me borrow um, Link's Awakening, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, and then you know we we talked about Doom and Kentucky Route Zero. Um, I guess we could say it now, but we're both playing Hades, and so we're going to do an episode on Hades coming up. So um, yeah, which I'm pretty pretty excited to talk about. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, we've had some back and forths through text. Um, I've played uh, quite a bit more than you have. Um, Mm -hmm. and sort of have this top-down view. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it uh, maybe in February, January? We're still kind of figuring out the schedule, but soon. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I played the original Super Metroid. um, And if you'd like to hear um, my opinions on that, I guested on my brother's podcast, the Game Sharks podcast. um, And we did a whole episode uh, on that, which was a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, I did also play Axiom Verge, which is a Metroidvania that I think you'd like. Yeah, I have that uh, on my list of games to play. I know we did an episode catching up on um, some Marvel comics. Were you able to read any other comics this year? Or is that kind of like the bulk of comic stuff that you kind of read? That was the long and short of it, I think. Yeah. Um, Although if we want to do another teaser, I have started reading Usagi Yojimbo for an episode we're planning to do um, early next year, um, which has long been on my to read list. Um, Same. I, yeah. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to just talking about how long I've known about this character and always wanted to read some comics, but yeah. I've never gotten, gotten around to it. So that's right. exciting. I had his action figure when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I do want to recommend a few comics to you. Uh, uh, last year, we wrapped up our 2019 recap episode by talking about things I was looking forward to reading. And one of them was House of X, Powers of X by Jonathan Hickman, which is his kind of, um, you know, taking the X-Men franchise and just sort of giving them a reset and starting them off uh, in a, on a new path. And he's now the current writer for X-Men. Uh, and I finally, I read that and it's just, absolutely fantastic arguably one of the best x-men stories i've read and i don't know how long uh, maybe going back to grant morrison's run but what he manages to do is take the entirety of x-men lore and continuity and put them all together in a really satisfying way um, and takes a character who's been part of the x-men for years and revealing that they have this power which sort of connects everything together. And it's such a great reveal. It was so surprising and so satisfying. It's great for new readers, uh, even though if you are familiar with um, a lot of X-Men history, it's even more satisfying. And I can't wait to keep reading you know, everything past that because apparently 
all the comics that have spawned from that series have been pretty fantastic. I think there's just the regular X-Men and Marauders is supposed to be great. Um, and New Mutants came back and that's supposed to be great. Uh, side note, I watched the New Mutants movie and it's really, really bad. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to mention this comic called Dracula Motherfucker. Um, Dracula, oh, you, comma, Motherfucker. You've talked about this before. Yeah, this is by Alex DeCampi and illustrated by Erica Henderson, who is a favorite artist of mine. She was the illustrator on um, Squirrel Girl for quite a few years. Uh, And uh, what it is, it's like sort of a 70s noir version of Dracula with a focus on Dracula's brides. You know, like, you know, the three. Yeah, the three vampires that 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 are kind of part of his crew <laughs> crew is probably not the right word it's yeah. kind of focusing on them in this like um you know this prototypical 70s uh, reporter slash photographer um really what's great about it is erica henderson's art um it's just super fantastic where she's using a lot of minimal colors uh, so spreads and pages typically have kind of like, uh, you know, like one or two big, bold primary colors. Um, and she uses it in kind of bold ways. And and even the artwork oftentimes kind of like she'll get into close-ups and, and, and the, the colors won't overlap anymore. And it's really, it's really quite beautiful. But she wrote about her process in the back of the book. And I really wanted to read... Um, this little excerpt from it because I talk about comics a lot on the show and I think she kind of boils down what I love about comics in this is um, in this paragraph. Um, so she's basically breaking down some of her panels and, and her approach to the, to the, to the graphic novel. Um, but she says, I appreciate the level of abstraction that comics allows us to work in as a baseline It's harder to convincingly go abstract in film because we're experiencing images and sound and the movement of time largely in the same way we would in real life, with our senses. With a written word, a writer can say that a character looks incomprehensible, and we have to accept that this person cannot be comprehended. Comics are somewhere in the middle. I don't feel the need to strive for realism in comics because we're already having to stitch together scenes using one or two drawings and some text. So why try to pretend like we're dealing with real life? All of this is to say that while doing this 1970s neo-noir Dracula book, I did not feel like I needed to work with realistic color. And she's really boiling down to me why I love comic books so much. That abstraction, what happens between the panels, or the juxtaposition between the panels, the use of color, the use of line, and design. Um, so I, I, I just kind of wanted to read that to kind of... Um, pull it all together yes yeah, yeah. that sounds great uh, and finally the last comic i really wanted to recommend to you and i will let you borrow it uh it's called the amazing spider-man full circle i'm not surprised at all no and um you know i didn't read a ton of spider-man this year but this was so much fun and what it is is a round robin style graphic novel so they got um jonathan hickman jerry dugan Nick Spencer, Kelly Thompson, Al Ewing, Chip Zardsky, and Jason Aaron. And Hickman started it off, and he wrote like an eight-page story and then handed it off to the next writer. And then they handed it off to the next writer. And so that each writer got assigned an artist. Um, And it's just, it's so fun and ridiculous. 
There's time travel. There's werewolves. They go to space. There's like clones. There's like fake Nick Furies. It's just so ridiculous. And everything around Robin's story should be, but, you know, exemplified with some beautiful artwork and, you know, one of my favorite characters. So it's a lot of fun. And it's like something I'd like to see more of in comic books that kind of like, let's just go for broke, you know, because you can, you can't really do that with big budget movies. Like, let's just hand this, this story off to another writer. Although they do. If you look at the writing credits, half times there's like six or seven people, but I digress. It's a ton of fun. I will let you borrow it. And I'm sure you will really enjoy it. Yeah, that sounds great. Especially because it's so um, disconnected from the need for continuity. It's just like, here's Spider-Man. We're putting him in outer space. Uh, (laughs) uh, And then let's see where this goes. It's really cool. Uh, I did manage to read a lot this year, um, all things considered. Yeah, me too. Um, Didn't read a ton of 2020 releases. Um, I'm going to rattle off some that are sort of kind of coming off the the coattails of previous episodes. Um, I read... Tombs of Adawan, which is the second Earthsea book by Ursula Le Guin. Oh, cool. Uh, I did read The Obelisk Gate, which is part two of the Broken Earth trilogy. We covered um, the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin mm-hmm. earlier this year. Uh, I did finish The Stand, which took up most of my summer. Um, <laughs> are, you gonna, are, are you planning on watching the miniseries? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hearing hear like things, mixed things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think those are like the sort of episode follow-ups. Um, I did read this really great uh, novella called uh, Binti by Nettie Okorafor, who, um, mm-hmm. you know, she, a lot of her work um, is considered um, African futurism. So unlike Afrofuturism, which takes a African-American or Western sort of worldview, uh, African futurism is really um, set in and based on uh, you know, specific um, uh, cultures and traditions um, found in Africa. So it's, it's you know, it doesn't have a sort of Western worldview. Um, it was really cool. There's um, two other novellas in the series, um, and it's supposedly in development for a TV show at Hulu, which is exciting. I'll definitely keep an eye mm. on that. Um, I think my favorite read of the year was The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which is... Uh, a horror novel about four. I think friends. I have this. I think I have this bookmarked. Oh for, yeah. To read. I, I, yeah, I know it showed up on a lot of lists at the end of the year. But yeah, it's um, four friends who were uh, Blackfeet and grow up on a reservation uh, get got get caught hunting where they're not supposed to be, and then ten years later, um, something has sort of come back to haunt and uh, atone for what they did. So like you, I know what you did last summer uh, with Native Americans. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but probably smarter because that's not a particularly good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's um, much smarter. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a big section of the book where one of the characters is really sort of wrestling with, is this really happening to me? What's going on? Am I crazy? And like, it kind of had um, those um, Pet cemetery vibes that we talked about that the book really did a good job of, but the adaptations kind of skimped on. Yeah, I... Um, I think that, you know, that, uh, Binti and the only good Indians are the two, I think must reads I'd, I'd recommend. Um, I did read the first X-Wing rogue squadron novel over the summer, uh, after they announced the new star Wars flight sim game that came out earlier this year. Um, mm-hmm. I had skipped those when I was a kid because I didn't have any Jedi in them. 
uh, and it's really, uh, they're pretty fun. Uh, I mean, this first one, I think there are like 10 of the novels in the series and comics, but, um, you know, focusing on the pilots and that sort of military science fiction is definitely a different avenue for Star Wars and to sort of have it removed from the big characters and the Jedi and all the mysticism. It was, uh, it was cool. I, I remembered how much I liked the dog fights and wish there were more of them in the movies and stuff. But So I wanted to mention... Um, this book by Glenn Kenny, who's a who's a film critic, um, and he wrote this book called Made Men, which is about the making of Goodfellas. Um, this is the 30th anniversary year of Goodfellas. Uh, it's a personal favorite of mine. And the book really gets into the minutia of the making of the movie with interviews from cast and crew. and But it also talks about Henry Hill himself um, and a lot of things behind you know, the reasons for making the movie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Interviews with Thelma Shoemaker. And uh, it's just so exhaustive and great. If you're a big, you know, behind the scenes movie fan, it's just perfect. But there's also an element of film criticism in there too, where he breaks scenes down uh, with camera movement and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Super great. Really loved it. He's a great critic in general. But I've read a lot of crime novels this year. Uh, I got really into crime stuff, and I discovered this author um, who I've instantly fallen in love with. His name is Donald E. Westlake. Have you heard of him? The name sounds familiar. He's also written under pseudonyms, so he's written the the Parker novels uh, under oh, okay. the name Richard Stark. That's the same guy. Um, I haven't read any of the the Parker novels, but I've read a few of his. Um, uh, under his own name. I read this book called Cutie, uh, The Cutie, um, a, a double book, which was called um, Double Feature, which is two short stories, two novellas, uh, both uh, crime novels are kind of centering around film, and one called um, Somebody Owes Me Money. Uh, and they're all like super succinct. Like they're the kind of books you read where it seems so simple, but it, it, it just can't be because it's just everything is perfect and in its right place. They're really funny and light while also surprisingly have something to say and impactful and have these great amb- ambiguous endings. I just really taken to these. I've read these three books already and I've already picked up a few more. He has so many books, over 50 books. So I'm just like, just through the moon that I get to keep discovering this guy's work. So I'm really looking forward to that. Nice. But, you know, we could keep doing this all day. Obviously, I'd love to just chat nothing more about the stuff that we've, we've you know, taken comfort in this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we should probably wrap things up. And uh, what are we going to talk about next time? Uh, well, next time is going to mark our 50th full episode. Um, you know, uh, yeah. excluding a few bonus episodes here and there yeah we're coming up on two years so uh i I think for our 50th show we're gonna kind of look back on uh maybe some favorites um and maybe talk a bit about what's coming in the new year yeah i think we just it'll just be kind of like wide-ranging conversation about the show and maybe get into some of the nitty-gritty of it which we Mm -hmm. haven't done too too much um but also things that we are looking forward to and and talk about the coming year yeah, sounds great. Yeah, well, thanks again for for doing this. Uh, I know it's been a tough year, and but it's meant a lot that uh, 
that uh, our our friendship has been a constant and, and the show has been a constant. Yeah, same here, man. It's um, yeah, it's really been an anchor uh, when I've needed it. So yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, for anyone who's been listening, we we appreciate that as well, and um, we're looking forward to uh, you know maybe <laughs> not talking about the apocalypse quite so much in 2021. We'll see. I think Let's I'm hope. starting to feel hopeful again. So awesome. That's a great right. note to end on. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the Whatcheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.